Michael Fullen is the former Dean of Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. He is recognized as a worldwide authority on educational reform and is a prolific and award-winning writer. At the beginning of the year, I was reading one of Michael's readings of Rich Seam, How New Pedagogies Find Deep Learning, and I was inspired. And what do educators do when they're inspired? Tell the world. Well, I also told Michael Fullen and also asked him if he'd be interested in joining me for a podcast to talk about some of the ideas in this reading. So here is my conversation with the Professor Emeritus of the University of Toronto, Michael Fullen. Leadership, whether it's a school principal or somebody at the district level, our, uh, our definition of a good leader is a leader who participates as a learner with the others in moving the system forward. So if you take that phrase, participates as a learner, this means that the leader is right smack in the middle of the adaptability phenomenon. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Lifelong Learning Podcast. And today I'm joined digitally with the one and only Michael Fullen. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. Glad, glad to be with you. And thank you for uh, troubleshooting with me to uh, get this great app, Zencaster, to record the podcast with me. Okay. Well, I don't know whether I learned anything, but you took me through the steps and I passed. <laughs> well, you really exhibited those uh, deep learning skills <laughs> that we're looking for in our students. Yeah, good. To begin, I was reading your paper, A Rich Seam, How Pedagogies Find Deep Learning, that you co-authored with Maria Langworthy. I loved it. And the reason I was reading it is to build on a research base to inform how to support learning technologies, support teachers and coordinators in my context, which is the Catholic Education Diocese of Parramatta. And as I was reading through it, there was so much that aligned with what I believe about learning. So this one reading, Michael, <laughs> a reach theme, has really set a scene for me this year. Can you tell me about deep learning, new pedagogies? Uh, sure. In, in 2014, uh, the group I was working with, which uh, my Toronto-based group, but we also linked into uh, uh, Greg Butler, who was uh, had left Grant Microsoft and wanted to do some something interestingly new. Uh, we we knew there was something wrong, uh, and by that I mean the present system, the public school system, whether it's Australia, or U.S., Canada, or almost anywhere. Uh, wasn't working, that students weren't finding passion, they were uh, increasingly bored as you went up the grade levels, they disengaged, mm -hmm. and it was it was uh, spreading and there was a large percentage of students who just weren't connected. So we knew the, that the present system and other people had said this wasn't going anywhere. So we started to look for alternatives and had seen some of it in a few schools, uh, very much the minority pockets of this, so we decided to launch a, a an initiative that was called uh, New Pedagogies for Deep Learning. So let me define the deep learning. Uh, deep learning for us is, if you put it in common sense terms, it's uh, quality learning that sticks with you the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. So that's how I would put it in a descriptive way, a simple way in one way. Uh, but we then began to flesh out what were the smallest number of ingredients that should be there. So that uh, took us to looking at the learning outcomes. And we uh, had done some work on what we call now the C's, uh, the, the 21st century skills, uh, collaboration, communication, creativity, and critical thinking. 
but most people, they'd been around for 20 years. Most people hadn't done anything with them uh, much that was exciting, at least. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, floating around, what one could say, was character education and citizenship. Character education is one's uh, integrity and uh, commitment to learning. And citizenship is how, how much do you care locally and, and globally to uh, to to you know to be engaged in the world basically. So we then uh, created this uh, deep learning, the essence of it in in outcome terms. And what you would want to focus on are the six C's, that uh, the four plus character and citizenship. Mm-hmm. Uh, to make the six C's come alive in a pedagogical sense, we said that regular pedagogy doesn't work. So we use this name. It's not quite accurate for reasons I'll mention in a moment, but it's accurate enough. New pedagogies for deep learning. Well, the new pedagogies are how would teaching be different? And we have, uh, this is written in our work now, uh, we have four pillars of the learning uh, uh, foundation that has to go with the six C's. And they are partnerships between and among students, teachers, and parents. So partnerships is one. Mm-hmm. The second is engaging pedagogy, which are the kind of uh, collaborative inquiry that would go on between students and teachers as they pursue something. The third is changing the learning environment so it's not constricted to a small classroom. It's the world, if you like, access to the ideas in the world. And the fourth is leveraging digital. Uh, we had talked about uh, technology being not a driver but an accelerator. So mm-hmm. leveraging digital is this, this the uh, Accelerator. So we took these uh, ideas, uh, and in order before we got started in the work with the schools, uh, we uh, the Pearson uh, company where Michael Barber was a, a member. They were doing thought pieces, and they they asked us or commissioned us to do a thought piece on this deep learning. So that's how the rich seam came about, and it came about just prior to our actual starting this. And the model we used, and I should say just as a moment of change uh, thinking here, that one of the things that our team, myself and and others have concluded very accurately, I would say now, is that 80% of our best ideas come from leading practitioners. That is, teachers and principals are doing it already. Uh, They might be in the minority, but they're leading that so we find yeah we do go to research but we find the most exciting ideas are in this or that school that are doing some something so we knew it existed practically speaking we had the notion very strongly that something was definitely wrong it was going uh, downward in the system and that that had to be changed so we invited um, up, up, uh, schools in, in the and sometimes countries to join us. And the model was, let's have uh, our, our model, which was, didn't turn out to be precisely this, but let's have a thousand schools, uh, mm-hmm. about a hundred from each of 10 different countries and join together with those schools. Uh, there might be, uh, as I said, a hundred schools or so. And we would then implement and further develop the ideas by, by doing it almost like a living laboratory so that the, uh, the rich seam was the kind of uh, intellectual and practical foundation of uh, heading into this work. So it didn't work out to exactly 100 schools. It, it's, we have eight countries now, not 10, but nonetheless, we have a very large scale 
operation underway with lots of mutual learning. I can I will say more about it as we get into the interview. Mm -hmm. It's well established now after uh, five years of implementing this work. I love how you, you touched on the driver is the best ideas come from our practitioners, our leaders in our schools. And I like that idea because it's a concept of leadership that has shift, shifted. We always talk about as this dichotomy that you, you hear quite a lot, the industrial mode of learning through to 21st century learning and what the drivers were. I mean, we could go into learning theories and behaviorism, but I guess one thing that's remained constant is that concept of constructivism and how we can construct knowledge and learning is a social process. It's not a top-down directive. It's something that is sticky and, and not clear cut and relies upon people you know how a lot of those great ideas come from people mm -hmm. but that's got to be a part of what drives change yeah and the, the <clears throat> that is the idea and you have to be able to uh you have to be able to make that accessible that <clears throat> if you went to constructivist theory uh, and you started to explain it to young and you, and you took a, a kind of the rational approach to explaining it all, you would end up, it would be so complex. Mm -hmm. So you have to make it accessible. And mm -hmm. our model, I think, is user-friendly that way. The six C's are accessible. People recognize them. So that's one thing. And the second thing is you have to get the good ideas circulating. They can't yeah. be just in one classroom here. Or when, now they're there. They have to, we call it uh, um, professional capital. They have to they have to be a resource that people start to develop and then in our network enables it to be shared and rapidly taken up and implemented by others so mm -hmm. so uh, so making it accessible in a meaningful usable way and making it uh, also um, when it once it gets going um, processing the good ideas so that others can learn from them across countries in this case mm -hmm. and y you can't separate how technology and network technology especially has enabled the way that you've collaborated to get teachers ac across many countries i mean it's that whole notion um you know the old it's not what you know it's who you know mm -hmm. I, I put this spin on it it's it's not what you know and it's not who you know it's what you and who you know know <laughs> if that makes sense yeah it does make sense and i i think it is also a little bit um a little bit tricky. The role of technology is turning out to be um, um, almost like uh, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, two mm -hmm. personalities. And that if you, uh, uh, now I think we have an increasingly good handle on technology uh, and that the way to explain it is there's nothing automatically good or automatically bad about technology. It can be either or both. Mm -hmm. And that the growing uh, presence of technology actually is uh, somewhat of a negative thing increasingly. Uh, I just read a book by Cal Newport. It's called Digital Minimalization, mm -hmm. where he, uh, he's showing how the, uh, the research, for example, that, uh, that kids who are linked to their, uh, their iPhones and, and are just linked to a technology almost all day long, actually suffer greater anxiety over short periods of time that people have more broadly if you look at exchanges on technology you have superficial access to most people but you have growing distrust because your subgroups are insular and the, and your other other connections are superficial 
So there's a lot wrong with technology or could go wrong with technology. And the solution is to have an educational formulation like new pedagogy for deep learning that allowed you to be in the driver's seat with technology, the learner and the combinations of learners. So this is also about power. This is the power of humanity. Uh, and if I would put it this way, this one, uh, artificial intelligence, A1 is the machine version of deep learning and new pedagogies for deep learning is the human version of deep learning. Yeah, I agree. It's well said. What I like about your your work is, you know, deep learning is a philosophy and that philosophy guides the use of technology. If that if that makes sense, it's like a it's a tree with rich roots. It's not going to topple over once <laughs> once we've got all this technology right. in a room. So there's there's something that drives the use of of technology, and I love that saying. You've got um, pedagogy is the driver, and technology can can be the accelerator. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and it's the because we've added you know in a sense with character and citizenship, you add purpose and passion. Mm -hmm. And that, in fact, our book, uh, the book we did last year, which was the culmination of our first four years of work, is called Engage the World and Change, Engage the World, Change the World. Mm -hmm. So that title really captured, we're talking about the learner now, and we include teachers in that and Mm -hmm. others, but certainly the student. So that the student now, we really have, uh, it goes back to John Dewey or you could go to Paulo Freire, the Brazilian educator with peasants. He was trying to get people who were uh, on, uh, you know, on the more on the higher, who didn't have as much access to be part of engaging the world, to learn and change their circumstances and the circumstances beyond that. So we've kind of uh, taken that uh, idea because we saw it coming from the students. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is, again, learning from practitioners. In this case, it's the students. And the students were uh, uh, showing us that purpose and passion was the thing that was missing from their normal learning Mm -hmm. and their lives. Mm -hmm. And that's been a huge uh, revelation. It wasn't like we went in with that theory and said to students, do you like it? It was we created a framework of action and the students started and the teachers started to flourish with that kind of uh, orientation and substance and we then leveraged it like crazy. Mm-hmm. And I like you, you make specific reference to in, in the uh, rich scene where you talk about uh, new, new learning partnerships. You focus on student aspirations and, yeah. and building a con- context for, for kids to learn, but it's got that meaning for students. Yeah. And we're pushing it into, because uh, it naturally goes there, into innovative uh, arenas that really one wouldn't have expected. And the biggest one is equity. Uh, whether you take, again, Australia, especially Australia, uh, North America, you, um, England, uh, not so much Scandinavia, or but still everywhere. Uh, but the point is this, that, that inequity in those societies has rapidly increased in the last, increasingly so in the last 40 years, but let's say the last 10 years, that that's there's more and more inequity in society, whether it's wealth or however you measure it. Mm-hmm. There's more and more inequity in schools and that. And so you, what, what people have tried to do is beef up the basics, literacy and numeracy, which has not really captured those students are already alienated because it just gives them more grunt work. And mm-hmm. what we've discovered was there's a way to get at literacy and numeracy. And it's not by intensifying 
your study of literacy and numeracy. It's by doing things that are proactive, that, that stokes your passion, that gets people to work in teams, that has them thinking about, I'm a, I, I'm a, I'm a young member of this mm-hmm. uh, of the world, and the world isn't necessarily going in a positive uh, direction right now. Mm-hmm. And I've got a responsibility to be part of that. I'm, I'm worried for myself. I want to be, I, I want to be there. I want to be a player. Mm-hmm. It taps into the human condition. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Okay. Let's talk about something juicy, Michael. <laughs> yeah. Change and innovation at a system-wide change. That sounds like one of the most complex things to tackle. Can I give you my take in my minimal experience in, in looking at system-wide change? Well, you're a practitioner. You're going to tell me more than I'm going to tell you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for enabling me. (laughs) Okay. So I think of change and I think of scale and that's got to be incorporated, right? Yeah. You need to have a, a philosophy that's going to drive the change. The change is going to be something that makes it's different, but better. Um, my analogy, Michael, would be, you know, you get a long, a long rope and, you, and you're at one end of that long rope and you're trying to shake it and you want to get that movement, that change happening at the other end. It takes quite a lot of effort to, to get change happening across this whole system. Maybe the system is the rope there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's why I like how you, you mentioned that, uh, that middle out change how it's not top down it's it's kind of we need to kind of tap in at the i guess key points of where change is going to actively take effect how can you align that my analogy kind of unpack it for me where i'm not aligning well what i may be missing here yeah it's it's um it's a good start i think the the problem with the rope compared to humans is that humans have ideas of their own where the rope doesn't mm-hmm so not only, you know, it's true that you get the dynamics going a little bit the way you said, but then the rope t- starts to talk back mm-hmm. and uh, you have other additions. So the, the, and I've been working on this since the year uh, two, uh, 2003 when I joined the uh, Ontario government and we did system change. So we've had uh, 18 or so years of experience of this or mm-hmm. a decade and a half at least. And the, the issues are you know, to try to keep them simple in one way is top-down change doesn't work because you know, the top doesn't get it right and people won't do what they're told even if there is some rightness to it. <laughs> yeah. And the bottom-up doesn't add up because it's uh, ad hoc, it's only uh, in pockets, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So you have to say, how do you get um, how do you get the system to change? Because it's not good enough just to have a few uh, innovative pockets. And, and we, we do use the concept leadership from the middle to open this up in a different way. So the middle is what is ever between the individual school and the state. Mm-hmm. So it can be, uh, you know, it can be networks of schools, it can be uh, uh, municipalities, or in the case of Catholic systems in, a, in Australia, uh, Parameter where you work is the middle. Mm-hmm. And, and so what we've said is that we have to think of the uh, of the three levels as operating, and I'll put it conceptually a little bit, mm-hmm. is that the middle starts to see itself as neither doing what it's told from the top, nor um, ignoring the bottom. So it sees itself as uh, how do we free ourselves up to be innovative? Mm-hmm. So they've got to have greater capacity at the middle. 
there's only three things. That's one of them. The second thing is they've got to think of policy as they look upward as not uh, as not things that they should be implementing in a literal, literal sense, but, but as uh, initiatives that they should be exploiting for local purpose. So there's, there's an engagement of the policy, if you like. And then at the bottom, you want to think of the so-called bottom, which are uh, teachers and students and others, as how do you liberate the bottom to be learners? And the big difference in our work is we're liberating not individuals only, there's some of that, but we're liberating groups. So there's a social capital aspect to this. And I can talk about it in different terms, but basically the notion is this is like a social movement. Mm-hmm. And a social, and, and so it's not a mechanical uh, uh, model anymore. It's a social movement model. Social movements are dynamic, but they have patterns. They get patterns. And the leadership's role in this case is to uh, foster, identify, learn from, extract uh, the patterns that are better and better and better mm-hmm. by working closely with, uh, with uh, other leaders so that the sources of ideas are coming upwards and uh, and downwards and sideways, all, th- all three of those. And so that's why it's more complex. But once you open it up and you treat it as a movement, uh, you'll see in, in my most recent book that we might get to called Nuance, mm-hmm. I've said that re- 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 uh, some leaders have nuance, which means that they, they don't ap- approach it in a simple, straightforward way, but they know what they're doing. And that in basically what they, they're doing, they figure out, I've called it uh, three things. One is they work on joint determination. So I'm a leader. You're you're working with me, whether you're one school or 50 schools. We want to jointly determine where we're going. Mm-hmm. So this requires sophistication of leadership. The second key uh, component of the, the nuance is adaptability. As we do it, we have to learn and adapt together to what's going to be stronger, better, what should be jettisoned. So there's, again, that interactive um, component. And the third and final one is, I call it a culture of accountability. When people are interacting together, when there's a transparency about it, uh, when leaders are in the room, so to speak, you don't need that distant accountability so much because you're there. Uh, That people, and and the group holds itself accountable even more strongly once it's transparent and it's uh, it's operating within a school or set of schools. So we we think we have uh, resolved the accountability dilemma. Uh, The accountability dilemma is top-down accountability doesn't work, Mm -hmm. but the answer can't be, therefore, we should have no accountability. Mm -hmm. The question has to be, now that we know what bad accountability is, what does good accountability look like? Mm-hmm. And that is uh, in new pedagogies for deep learning. We have great good accountability because it's specific, because uh, it's transparent, because the group is producing it, because they're assessing its impact, they're improving it. All of those things are built in to the model itself. Mm-hmm. I, I like the three, what you've broken down there, the joint determination. You know, there's a clear direction and a focus and a, I guess an agreement and a willingness to to focus and apply ourselves to this change that we um, aspire, I guess. Well, and you I- started earlier with constructivism. Uh, this none other than construct- constructivism, but we're applying it to system change. Mm-hmm. It's co-constructed by people who are in the system. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the, um, the, the adaptability, being able to adapt to change, mm-hmm. being able to have the agility to kind of 
identify a need and act on it. Yeah. Do you find that that is one of the hardest traits or disposition within this framework to kind of elicit out of people? Or when I think of that, that, that's difficult. Like how do you address that? Or how do you support that? Or how do you provide the conditions or environments to to say it's okay to adapt and you want to adapt? Because that's essentially a mindset shift. Yeah, it's very hard in, in a couple of ways. One is just intrinsically hard because uh, because you really uh, – you don't you don't necessarily know what to adapt to. You don't know the answer. In other words, so there's a certain um, what do we do next uh, dilemma, mm-hmm. and then psychologically it's uh, it's also difficult because and I'll, I'll talk about the conditions under which we'll make it work because you're not sure if you adapt something that the new version is going to work or not. So this is why the process has to be there. It's a process and it, it is a mindset. We would call it a a culture Mm -hmm. uh, so that it's not just individuals you build it into the culture and basically it is a a continuous improvement or innovation mindset that says it's okay to try new things in fact we want you to Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, it's okay to make mistakes because that's how you learn so as long as we can go from trying things to modifying them so they work better it can't be just willy-nilly trying things all over the place and failing, you know, failing that. So I think the two biggest problems are one is a laissez-faire environment where anything goes, mm-hmm. and the other is a too rigid environment where people are kind of uh, kept to a particular set of things they're supposed to do. So in between that is this uh, innovative, more dynamic, and what comes out of the process, we've seen this in the deep learning, are, are clearer outcomes as you go. Mm-hmm. Not only the outcomes in terms of what people are learning, the six C's, but also the innovations that are best established that, to maximize learning mm-hmm. and the processes that maximize learning. So I think it's very much um, adaptability may be the essence yeah. of that process. But adaptability means you you come up with new and better things as you go. It's not just, well, we'll try this plus this, and we never, you'll never draw any conclusions. You do draw conclusions about what's working mm-hmm. in the adaptability process. Yeah, that, and that sounds like a link. Um, you, you mentioned um, too directive or too passive, like the dysfunctional ends of these continuums. Mm-hmm. Veering too far to either end, you acknowledge those mistakes, and by that acknowledgement and redirecting, you kind of build that acumen to kind of stay in that sweet spot, I guess. Yeah, and it's it's iterative too. So it's not. I mean, wh- for example, leadership, whether it's a school principal or somebody at the district level, our uh, our definition of a good leader is a leader who participates as a learner mm-hmm. with the others in moving the system forward. So if you take that phrase, participates as a learner, then uh, this means that the uh, the leader is right smack in the middle of the adaptability phenomenon. Because mm-hmm. he or she is participating as a learner, so they don't have to. Uh, it's in real time, and this is what makes it. Uh, it's essential to be that good in dynamic times because you have to be there. Mm-hmm. That's great. Hey, Michael, I want to ask you about um, teachers being great learners themselves, as opposed to the notion of you're the teacher you're going to teach children. One, you are a leader of learning and, you're, and you model that learning and be transparent with your learning progress and share this with students because you want to 
develop those six C's within your students as well. With such contemporary, you know, learning experiences that we provide for students, yet sometimes I feel for teachers, that uh, innovation in that professional learning sense sometimes doesn't align with what happens in the classroom where we want teachers to be able to lead their learning or lead learning with a group of teachers, identify what the current state is, establish a goal where we want to go, what a next step is that we can focus on. Can there be a tension between those two? What's your experience in this area? Well, I think we have to go to the, the fundamental culture of the history of teaching that uh, you could say that the teaching profession uh, historically got off to the wrong start because uh, I'm sure I'm very sure you've heard the phrase teaching as a lonely profession mm-hmm. or the privacy of the classroom. Yeah. So there really is historically an individualistic basis of teaching. Mm-hmm. And that means you would get a great teacher here, a lousy one there, and the uh, the great teacher's ideas wouldn't get around and the lousy one wouldn't uh, wouldn't improve. So that the individual, uh, let's call it individualism, and, uh, and, and now what we've learned in the last 20 years is to weigh is, uh, and this is a breakthrough, I think, is the way to exp- uh, respect people's autonomy mm-hmm. instead of calling it isolation. Let's call it autonomy. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, and the research is really clear on this in the last four years, the, at the same time, show how teachers working together, well-led, uh, will learn from each other. And the group itself will increase its, uh, the, one of the words used is efficacy. Mm-hmm. It's a, efficacy as a, as a uh, collective ef- efficacy. Mm-hmm. So, so the shift now is, I might almost say you could have your cake and eat it too. too. So I, I put in a common sense terms, today, I, if I'm a teacher, today I'm autonomous. I'm working my own classroom. I have freedom, et cetera. Tomorrow I'm in the group, so I'm collaborative. And I bring some of my good autonomous ideas to the group and other people learn. I learn from them. And then the third day, I'm autonomous again, and I have better ideas because I just got some, and I'm applying it. And then the next day, I mean, literally, it's not, uh, obviously, it's not day by day, that, but flow by flow it is. And that the flow of the collaborative cultures that we know are really effective schools, are really effective uh, uh, networks of schools, mm-hmm. is when they are cycling back and forth from autonomy to collective focus and uh, learning things in doing that, assessing the evidence, increasing expectations, and seeing the results. We have many examples now of what this looks like. Moving between autonomy and collective focus. Yeah, it's both. It's it, it's an either or thing. It's one of those things that don't have a false dichotomy between autonomy and collaboration. Mm-hmm. You you kind of mentioned some of Hattie's um, high influence uh, strategies. When, when talking about autonomy and collective focus, do you think that in schools, and I know this is very generalized, do you think that time is spent um, adequately on these high impact strategies? I mean, I, 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 I often think how much time is spent on actively engaging in these actions as opposed to, you mentioned before, um, you know, that with policy. Uh, it's like sometimes I think we, we're great at adding a new idea or adding an agenda, but I don't think we're very good at taking others away. When I ask, ask that question, what is your response to that? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I want to take it in two parts. Uh, the, you mentioned John Hattie, and 
uh, we had, I see him quite, uh, you know, a couple of times a year at least, but a number of years ago when he was, when the high profile invisible learning first was mounting, uh, I had a discussion with him that went something like this. I said, what you're showing with these high impact teaching strategies, they're all the individual actions of teachers. And we know we when teachers work together, there's a greater impact. Uh, uh, what do you think about that? And he said, I haven't looked at it, but I will. And so uh, one of his doctoral students actually looked at collective effic efficacy, it's called. Collective. And to keep this really straightforward, what they found, and this is what we would have predicted, is that I, I'll define a collective efficacy in a moment, as he did. But what he found was the highest impact by a country mile was collective impact. Uh, the, the coefficient was 1.57. And the next one down was 0.85, et cetera, you know, the ones that he has on his list. So, so the collective efficacy outstripped the whole set, as you would expect, mm -hmm. because it's a combination of individual mm -hmm. things that are interacting, going together. And what he uh, unpacked there to start with was that collective efficacy was a combination of having very high expectations that you could make a difference, mm -hmm. not by itself, but with the other three, that's one. The second, that your uh, high expectations were coming from the evidence you had mm -hmm. and that you're getting, so evidence of impact. And the third was your use of, what he called it high yield teaching strategies. So not any old teaching, but high yield ones. And the fourth one, and these are his words, not although I could have written them, uh, that uh, the leader who participates is sorting those things out with the teachers. Mm -hmm. So this is like uh, directly uh, congruent. Uh, so the, I said two parts. So one part is understanding the dynamics of those four things, which makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. The second part then is what's the sub the content of the work of the pedagogy. And I think this is where we want to add something more pushy. We're, we're, we're going to say, yeah, you could do it around uh, literacy for uh, numeracy for the things I just described, mm -hmm. and your scores could go up. But it wouldn't necessarily make students more active learners or more exciting um, learners. And, and so we want to infuse that, those four things that I've just described mm -hmm. with the deep learning and, and predict, because we've already seen it, we've got enough evidence, that if you focus on the six Cs, and you do it with expectations, impact, high yield strategies, and uh, leadership participation, mm -hmm. you get phenomenal uptake and results of students working with each other, of them changing the world, is to put, to put it really strongly. So I think that this, uh, we, we need to understand the collective efficacy on the one hand, and, this, uh, second, and on the second hand, to put it to better use. Mm -hmm. The better use is new pedagogies for deep learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when I hear um, that uh, collective teacher efficacy, it just kind of resonates with culture um, within a staff as well, and and the power of the individuals, even the an individual's executive function, the, the way that they can lead learning to not support their own, as you said, mm -hmm. autonomy, but the uh, the collective focus as well. Yeah, yeah. The system change is the overall label that you just said it a minute ago. Is it is a change in the culture of how. Mm -hmm. systems operate and that change occurs within a school across schools and across the levels to the uh, regional level as well as the state level mm -hmm. so that's that's the system change and we're we're just working on another book now uh, called system change the the devil is in the details mm -hmm. 
and uh, it's it's taking we have a pretty good fix now on individual school change we have not a bad fix on sub-district change we can describe it we know what goes into it but system change is still uh, jumping around and we want to really articulate what we think we're finding out about it Mm -hmm. and then coming full circle that first question to ask you about our system change and you know sometimes innovation can come at the price of efficiency but you know that's not to say that efficiency is what we're looking for you know we're looking for a culture of growth and progress and these are these, I guess these are the uh, some of the big ideas that are here to, to kind of push forward to that better future to, as you say, help help kids change the world. Yeah, well, I think on the, uh, the innovations have to, uh, it is true that when innovations for, first appear, they haven't proven themselves. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they wouldn't be innovations. Uh, but, but once you, if you have the right process of trying it, sorting out, looking at impact and refining it, then it starts to pro- prove itself and you start to retain it. So I think that uh, it's really it's really the uh, having this notion that yeah it may not it may not if it, it wouldn't be innovative if it proved itself without any work. Mm-hmm. So you've got to keep making it better. That's one thing. But the second thing, the flip side of that is the status quo isn't very good anyways. Yeah. So that we can't actually say that the efficient system is so efficient it's great. It isn't. Mm-hmm. And so, so you're not, you're losing, uh, the, I once said the status quo was a loser, but uh, I was being a bit, you know, <laughs> I'm sure you looked at the effect you were looking for. <laughs> yeah, well, I was a bit cavalier about it, but in one sense, uh, if one says we don't want to try this because it might go wrong, take a look at the status quo and say, is it going wrong? And the answer is pretty much, there's a lot of things wrong in it. So we've got to innovate to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Michael. Final question. I'm speaking to, you know, one of the, you've had such an influence on education across the world. Michael Fullen, what's something you've been learning of late? What are some new reflections you've had in your role? Like, how do you, how do you, I guess, uh, live these six C's yourself? Well, for one thing, I stay close to practitioners. And it's, uh, in these days, that includes younger and younger we haven't found a student young enough who's not a change agent. So, mm-hmm. uh, if you want to, if you want to make, if you if you want to make sure you don't go stale, hang around young people in terms of the learning that we're talking about mm-hmm. and and people that are doing this. So, I think for myself, um, well, first of all, I have a great team of maybe a dozen people. They're all learners. They're all practitioners. Uh, we mix and match. So, uh, there's there's that learning. Secondly, we take on. Um, relationships to help improve systems, which means we're working with other people who want to make a change. So the state of California is one example. Victoria is another. So we have, uh, we really have, uh, we're we're in there in a re in, in those situations where major change is being tried. And so with this, with the team being connected and supporting each other, with the examples of people who want to change systems being ready before us. And with our joint engagement in it, it just keeps you alive by definition. It's the nature of the work. Mm-hmm. So staying close to practitioners who want to make a change is the way to stay young And if you're in the kind of work that I'm in. Excellent. Michael, thank you so much uh, for your time, uh, being so uh, generous with your time while you're here in Australia. And your new book, Nuance? Nuance it is, yeah. Is available just via your website? Uh, I think that, and by uh, uh, Corwin has a, a, a you know publishing office now in Melbourne for Australia. So you can get it through Corwin, you get it through Amazon, 
um, and and go to my website as well. Uh, the website is www.michaelfullen.ca. So Michael Fullen, all one word. So lots of there's lots of user friendly stuff on it. Excellent, Michael. Thank you so much for your time. Good. It was a pleasure talking to you, Chris.